Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I spent a good amount of time this week uh, with cassette tapes because I found a cassette tape in the back of my uh, desk that said uh, Lars's sermon. And it was a sermon that I preached in 2004. What a totally strange experience, by the way. I don't know if any of you have had this experience of hearing yourself uh, from a long time ago on a tape. It's only been 13 years since I delivered that sermon, and it's certainly still me But I view my life so different from this vantage point looking back. I can sort of picture myself in hand-me-down, mismatched uh, suits. I can hear my cadence speeding up due to insecurity and excitement. I can hear a zealous young man with very little seasoning preaching on things that I know he doesn't understand. The voice sounds younger, maybe a little bit more optimistic. There are so many things that I want to tell that young man many things that I assume he would tell me as well. We catch reflections of ourselves like that every so often, each being an invitation into something deeper than our present realities. Maybe you've caught a glimpse of yourself on a reflective glass or on a spoon and your heart either sinks or it soars. Someone shares an old picture and we feel warmly nostalgic or we feel regret. We find a letter that we wrote to somebody but we never sent. We see pictures of our parents at our own age. That's a scary one, isn't it? We find reflections of vivid memories and places and with people that are stronger than our operative senses. The experience is always a little bit odd, a little haunting for me. The concept of reflection has really endured as a motif in in literature and film because it's something that's really core to our human experience. We're offered these moments of reflection And based on the state of our hearts, our spirits, we respond to it in any number of different ways. Think of Narcissus, the vain hunter from Thespiae, who was led by Nemesis to a clear and beautiful pool where he catches a glimpse of himself and he becomes enchanted. The legend tells us that he was unable to move. He was fixated by his own beautiful reflection and he died there on the banks of the pool. Or how about Green, uh, Queen Grim, Grimhilda? I can't even say it. Queen Grimhilda, an oppressive empress of Snow White who owns a magic mirror that offers a reflection showing her exactly what she wants to see. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? You might think of funhouse mirrors. Mirrors that are there intentionally to distort reality and show us something that we're not. Harry Potter fans will think of the mirror of Erised. The mirror that Harry stumbles upon in his first year, and it shows you the desires of your hearts. It's inscribed, I do not show your face, but your heart's desires. Harry memorably sees himself gathered in by his deceased parents in the mirror. And the motif even makes an appearance in the Bible, in the book of James, where James says, be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word, but not doers, they're like those who look at themselves in a mirror and they look at themselves, and then upon going away, they immediately forget what, they're, what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. 
As we commemorate 500 years of the Reformation today, we focus on the second key phrase uh, in our six-week series, sola scriptura, scripture alone. The word of Holy Scripture alone has authority over the believer. And you might be asking yourself, well, how can a book, an inanimate object, have authority over us? That doesn't really make sense. Well, you have to remember that back in 1517, 500 years ago, Scripture was understood in a very different way practically in the church. Can you imagine if for a second that Beatrice, who did such a great job, by the way, got up here and read Scripture, the passage today, but she did so in Latin. And you don't know Latin. Maybe some of you do. I don't really know Latin. Uh, What if she had done that today without any translation? Can you imagine that even if you could read the, the, the Latin scripture, as many could not, could you imagine being disallowed from reading the Bible in your own home or reading it aloud to other people? That was the reality that Martin Luther and the early reformers were confronting. Luther and others what they did was they democratized scripture. They translated it into German, one of the most important historical acts that's ever happened. And they gave people access to the Bible in their own language and encouraged them to center their lives around scripture. In his Leipzig debate with John Eck, Luther stated, what is asserted without the scriptures or proven revelation may be held as an opinion, but need not be believed. That is giving the scripture authority over your life. At the Diet of Worms, his famous uh, defense that Luther gives, it goes like this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither the Pope nor the councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant because acting, again one, acting against one's own conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. What a great speech. For so long, the Bible had been a closed door, a tool that was inaccessible, that, that was only used by the elite. It was really impossible to allow Scripture to have authority over you because you couldn't understand it. You couldn't investigate it. You couldn't dig into it yourself. But the Reformers... The early reformers, they put scripture in the language and in the hands of the people, and they said, live by this word, live by this word. In other words, they allowed scripture to be accessible to the point where it could be called a mirror for us. The Bible has been spoken of in a lot of different ways. It's been spoken of popularly as a guidebook or a life raft or a user's manual or a teacher or a rule book. These metaphors tell us something about the Bible. They probably tell us something about ourselves, that we've come up with them. But none of them are much of an invitation. But James uses this this metaphor of a mirror for the word, that we're to peer into the word of God as we peer into a mirror. And it stands to reason that as we do so, we will see something reflected back to us. We will see something of ourselves reflected back to us. The hopes and the fears and the brokenness and the grand story that we're a part of. So first and foremost, before we peer into the mirror of Scripture and seek to give it authority in our lives, let's talk about what Scripture is. Notice that James used the term, the Word. We automatically probably read that and we think of Bible. Uh, We assume he's speaking of this this book of 66 books that's written by over three dozen authors and 
over a span of hundreds and hundreds of years. But remember, James didn't know that his letter that he was writing was going to be part of the Bible. Wasn't, didn't know that that was going to be part of the Christian canon. So he was certainly referring to the Holy Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. But I think, I'm reasonably convinced that he was referring to more. He was referring to the revelation of God's word. From the very beginning of creation, God has a word for his people. A word of creation, let there be light. A word of promise, I will make you a great nation. A word of correction, I do not delight in your empty sacrifices, so I will send you away. A word of redemption, I will bring you back to my holy mountain. And most profoundly, a word of salvation through Jesus Christ. I have come not to steal and destroy, but that you might have life and have it in abundance. God is constantly revealing himself to his people. And scripture is his word through human words as he continues to reveal even to us. Paul says as much when he encourages Timothy to continue in the faith. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching and reproof and correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Paul says that all scripture is inspired by God. Actually, Paul, as if grappling for some heavenly language, we think he creates a word here. It's not anywhere else. It's called a hapax legomenon. These are words that only show up one time in scripture. And we think he made this one up. The word is theonoustos. So theo is God, noustos is spirit or breath. And so what it really means is God breathed. So where you say scripture is inspired by God, what he's really saying is all scripture is God breathed. How majestic is that image, by the way? Inspiration comes from the mouth of God, the breath of God, the very source and symbol of life. It was God's breath that gave Adam life at the very beginning, and we share Adam's breath as humans. And his breath, his holy, spirit-filled, spirit-filled warm and life-giving breath is found in Scripture. You see, the Bible can't just be a guidebook or a life preserver or a rule book or a great story because none of those things breathe. None of those things are endowed with the almighty spirit that gives life and offers insight to the very vantage point of God, the creator. The book of scripture, the Bible, it breathes. It teems with life. And if we give it time and space to operate in our lives, we are promised that we're going to encounter the life-giving breath of God therein. I had, a, I had an Uber driver this week. Uh, his name was Altan Garrel. Uh, he was a young man from Mongolia. He drives full-time uh, for Uber. That's what he does for his living. And before we had even pulled out of the airport, uh, he said, so we're going to Hinsdale? I said, yeah. He said, so do you live in one of those huge houses in Hinsdale? And I said, no, my, my work provides a house for me. And he said, oh, what do you do? It's really amazing how many drivers ask that question within three minutes of getting in the car. Um, I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, okay, great. He said, well, I'm a Buddhist, uh, but I'm very interested in the Bible. I've been to church before, and, and man, yeah, I really, really like the Bible. 
I knew what I was preaching on this week, so I was a little intrigued by this. My, my ears were uh, perked to this. It turns out that Altan Garel is interested in the Bible for two reasons, and I want you to, to pick them up because they're really, really profound. The first reason is because it's in a language he can read. It's in a language he can read. He explained how, and I didn't know this really, but that the Buddhist monks speak in a language called Pali, the Pali language, which is a dead language that really only they speak and can understand. The second thing he likes is that people who read the Bible are nice and want to help other people. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's just fantastic. So upon hearing this, I got really fired up, and I began to tell him about what I was preaching on on Sunday, and I explained to him this theonoustos, this God-breathed word, how it's a living book, and that how God continues to breathe life through it in my life and, and how it's changed my life. And so I asked him, do, do you have a Bible? And he said, oh, yes, it's right here. And he handed me a book that was about an inch and a half by an inch and a half. Uh, it was a, a little tiny booklet with a few select verses from Scripture. Uh, and, and I wanted to infer, affirm in him that this was indeed part of Scripture, but I explained to him how he needed a full Bible so that he could see the Bible as, as a story, not just a verse here and a verse there, but a story, a narrative, where God is at work and speaking and breathing from beginning to end. He, uh, he let me pray for him at the end of our ride together. It's amazing how many times that happens, by the way. And I was really overwhelmed uh, by how my text for this morning was, was coming alive. My encouragement to him to, to get a full Bible because all of Scripture is God-breathed, not just a few verses. His excitement over a text that he could, he could understand, which is at the heart of this sola scriptura maxim, allowing Scripture to be a mirror in our lives. And his excitement over uh, people responding to God's word with care for others, reminding me that this is useful. It's supposed to elicit action in us. So uh, I was really mad that I didn't have a Bible in my bag to hand to him. I would have given him mine, but I did give him my contact info. So you can pray that he reaches out to me and I can get a Bible to him. The reason he needs a Bible, I told him, is because this is a book that you can center your entire life around. This is a book you can center your life around. Now, maybe some of you never thought of Scripture in that dynamic sense. Some of you may have had profound, life-changing, mirror-type experiences with Scripture, but have long since kind of lost your passion. It's become stale for you. Some of you probably have a great deal of respect and, and maybe even love for Scripture, but you need a reminder this morning of its authority over your life, over what you say and what you do and how you live. One of our core covenant affirmations is that the Holy Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, are the word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. In other words, the Scriptures are the place where we begin to build our life of faith, where we set our beliefs and our theology, and we also set the way that we act, how we live our lives. It's perfect because it's from God. And it places responsibility on us to follow it. Okay? So how do we approach this word and, and invite it to have authority over us? I'd like to suggest just three simple actions uh, that we can take to give authority to this God-breathed word and to live into sola scriptura, uh, as I encourage my Uber driver to do. The first is we must give room for God to speak through Scripture. We must give room for God to speak through Scripture. 
As Frederick Buechner points out in one of his greatest sermons, The Magnificent Defeat, he says, when a minister reads out of the Bible, I'm sure that at least nine times out of ten, the people who happen to be listening at all hear not, what they, not what's really being said, but only what they expect to hear read. And I think that what most people expect to hear read from the Bible is an edifying story, an uplifting thought, or a moral lesson. Something elevating, obvious, and boring. So that is exactly what they very often do here. Only that's too bad, because if you really listen, there's no telling what you might hear. The most obvious part of giving authority over to the word is that you have to spend time in it. You have to read it well. Take time with the scripture. Set apart time and space to read and to be in God's word. Come with an openness to what God is trying to reveal to you. Pray for God's spirit upon your reading and your hearing. We cannot afford to miss God's word by becoming fixated on ourselves or our ideologies or our notions of what scripture ought to say. We need to allow scripture to speak to us. And remember, please, what a gift it is to have access to a Bible in your language. There are Christians throughout the world today who would, who would love to have a Bible in their language. We need to be mindful of those faithful reformers who lived and often died so that we could have such a gift. The second thing is we must know that God's word is supposed to have an effect on us. It's supposed to change us supposed to transform us. Paul uses two adjectives uh, for scripture in 2 Timothy. The first is God breathed, which we talked about. The second is no less amazing. It's that scripture is useful. Scripture is useful. It's something that's supposed to be used. As Paul told Timothy, it's useful for teaching and for reproof and correction, for training in righteousness, that it's useful to equip us for every good work. Scripture is not an academic, intellectual exercise. It demands a response that says, what am I going to do about what I just read? What am I going to do about it? Giving authority over the scripture means for us to say, this is more than a book. It, it has a decisive voice in how I live my life. And I choose this as the best tool to center my life around because God breathes through it, reveals himself in it. As James says in his mirror Im imagery, be doers of the word, not merely hearers or else you become like a person that completely forgets what they look like right after looking at them. The reflection that God gives us of ourselves and our lives must stick for us and it must affect the way that we live or else we haven't given the word proper authority. And I would invite you to impress such a value on the people around you like my Uber driver. Remember what he said. I like the Bible because people who read it are nice and help people. The third thing, we must place it above all other earthly authority. Our forebears in the Covenant Church had a saying that helped with this. You'll hear from time to time in Swedish, it's varadet skrivet. In English, where's it written? Where's it written? This became the maxim by which our, our forebears lived. It was a question that the community of believers asked one another as they lived together. And that is so my heart for this church that we would know each other well enough and do life together in such a way that we would faithfully gather and ask that question as we view each other's life. Where is it written? Because that brings us back to the primacy of scripture and it draws us back into God's word as the authority of our lives and our communal life together. At a funeral for Larry Pendexter this week, somebody said during remembrances, 
It's not about you being in the Bible. It's about the Bible being in you. I believe that as you experience the wonders of God's word, as you see God's life-giving breath therein, and as you fall in love with this remarkable gift, that you start to approach it properly saying, God, would you read and examine my life through these words? Through these words, would you give me a view of myself that I could never come up with on my own? As I listened to myself preach on those scratchy cassette tapes, I was more aware than ever that I don't have the benefit of visiting my past, having, the, having read the chapters of, of my story between now and then so that I might communicate with my former self what's most important, that everything's going to be okay, that God will be faithful, that your current fears and insecurities are going to fade, that life will go on, and that serving in the church is going to be very rich. But through the God-breathed mirror of the word, if we'll lend it that kind of space, which isn't our space to begin with, we're surely going to hear such words even more graciously and beautifully than human language can muster because we're going to receive the spirit-filled reflection of God's great life laid out for us. That reflection is offered to us as a gift so that we can take it boldly with new resolve into the world that his breath created. So please enjoy the word of God as a gift. Give it authority, sola scriptura. All scripture is God-breathed. Amen.